Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Fall Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker on this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Wages of Neo-Isolationism, and it was recorded on October 20th, 2014. Uh, I don't think the United States, for what we are hearing, is innately isolationist. I know that the Founding Fathers warned us about foreign entanglements, but I mean, this country was founded and then immediately went to war with the Barbary Coast, and we, we could look at the interventions all the way up to the Great White Fleet in the early 20th century. We had a period of isolationism after World War I, and there was good reasons, not good reasons for it, but understandable reasons why it occurred. And that was we were disappointed that uh, World War I had ended as it did. The German army, remember, did not surrender in Germany. It surrendered inside France and Belgium. We accepted the armistice. We had this naive Wilsonian idea that we were going to remake the world. Six months later, we finally sat face to face with the Germans, and they basically told us 75% of your troops are gone. We didn't really lose the war. We were stabbed in the back, and we had the uh, trajectory toward World War II. That fact and the Great Depression that ensued dominated American foreign policy thinking in World War II. Whether you look at the minutes of Casablanca or Yalta or Potsdam, everybody said, we're going to defeat, humiliate this enemy, occupy their territory, and change their constitution, and we're not going to reside. Now, partly, it wasn't just the original NATO idea of keeping America in, Russia out, and Germany down, but there was a realization that it was in our interest, that if we weren't proactive, these people in Europe would do it again, as they had done three times in a 100-year period. Prussian War, World War I, World War II. There was fear, of course, that our ally, that Franklin Roosevelt had said, Winston, if you just let me talk to Joe Stalin, and I give him everything he wants, he will appreciate that. He likes me much better than he does you. Let me, con that's, I'm quoting verbatim. So there was a naivete about Soviet communism, which was quickly dispelled by 1946. And uh, there was also the recognition that somebody had kept the peace somewhat, and that was the British Empire that was collapsing. And so out of that menu, we stepped in. And what ensued was, what, 70 years of engagement, post-war engagement, bipartisan engagement. It's easy to caricature. We didn't quite win everything in Korea. We sort of got bogged down in Vietnam. We, we moved guys in the Caribbean, Panama. But basically the idea was the United States was going to encourage free market capitalism, consensual government when we could afford to, and it wouldn't endanger our national interest because of this colossus monster called the Soviet Union. And we were going to have free trade, open borders, easy communication. And what did it lead to? It led every once in a while to a Roman-like bandit the Romans dealt with Mithridates or Vercingetorix. We had guys like Saddam or Milosevic or Noriega that were minor but nevertheless serious, um, seriously minded threats to this order. And where, what we enjoy as a result of that bipartisan or, uh, effort is globalization today. So people in the Amazon basin have penicillin. People who are fighting Ebola can draw on a universe, uh, universal medical standards. There's antibiotics in Tibet. 
that was the product of that American achievement. Now, there were people in this 70-year period who doubted it, doubted it, the enterprise, the cost, but also the moral certainty that we were any better than anybody else. But the funny thing was that we never really entrusted the responsibility of commander-in-chief into their hands. My mother loved Adlai Stevenson. She voted for him, but as I told her once, you'd be insane to turn over the country to Adlai Stevenson, as I was looking back. And we didn't do it on two occasions. In my time, we had a version of Adlai Stevenson, less uh, articulate, but even more to the left, George McGovern. Nobody would turn over the government to George McGovern who doubted this system and said he was going to cut in half all U.S. aircraft carriers as soon as he was inaugurated. We, nobody would do that. The Democrats who were nominated and were elected, Harry Truman, JFK, even LBJ and, and Clinton, basically where they had objections within this system, they worked within its parameters. Only on one occasion, and that was probably due to Watergate, did we veer off from that trajectory and we, we elected Jimmy Carter. And we know what happened. The wages of, I have no inordinate fear of communism. Not one soldier will die on my watch. Human rights will predicate all foreign relations. If I sell weapons to the Middle East, they, if I sell planes to the Middle East, they won't have bomb racks on them. Was the honest terribles that 12 year, 12 month period from mid 1979 to mid 1980. And we said never again. And then we turned around. We didn't quite have a Watergate, but with the, dis the anger over the Iraq war and the financial meltdown gave us, this for the second time in this 70-year period, another president who did not believe in that post-war order. And we can see it from the trivial, the right-wing radio talking points that he had the apology tour, he bowed, he sat there while Daniel Ortega dressed down the United States for 28 minutes, and then he said, not my fault, I wasn't born then, to the fundamental. Five deadlines to Iran to stop enrichment, all ignored, silent when a million people went on the streets of Iran, uh, arguing for consensual government. He felt they were sort of neoconservatives, pro-democracy guys, he didn't like them. Uh, we can see it with the red lines to Assad, the step over lines to Putin, leading from behind in Libya. And so it raises this question, what was it about Barack Obama that he had in common with Carter and Adlai Stevenson? What was the doubt about it? Part of it was ignorance. This is a president, to be candid, who doesn't know the difference between the Falkland Islands and the Maldives. He thinks the islands off the coast of India are somewhere in the South Atlantic, and he wanted to be really trendy and said they were the Malvinas, but he called them the Maldives. He said people in Austria speak a language called Austrian. He believes his grandfather liberated Auschwitz, and the Russians did not do it. I could go on and on, but he doesn't know the history of the United States, and he doesn't know names like Dean Acheson or Henry Kissinger or John Foster Dulles, and he doesn't know all of the terrible choices they had to make over 70 years between something that was good versus something that was perfect and unattainable. So he doesn't appreciate the effort, the lives, the accumulated aggregate effort of the United States to do something better than the alternative. So he's quite cavalier in dismissing it. 
And Barack Obama's idea, there is no intrinsic reason why we're exceptional. As he said, Greece is exceptional. Everybody believes they're exceptional. Britain believes. But he didn't believe there was an exceptional role the United States had played and would play. And we had special relationships with countries that were, let's speak, that were either long, long friends and allies like France or Britain, or they were vulnerable. Only the United States cares about people like Israel or Greece or the Kurds, people that are very vulnerable or the Armenians. There's no strategic reason to do it other than we, we admire them and, and they need help. And he doesn't have that special affinity for those people who traditionally have earned American empathy. That's one reason. Second is I think that like Jimmy Carter, who was more learned than Barack Obama, and like Adlai Stevenson, who was far more learned than Barack Obama, he does share their therapeutic view of the universe. The Rousseauian view that everybody is born in the world in chains, that the religion, that the community, the government makes us flawed. If we were just natural, we would revert to our pacifistic, utopian, peace-loving, kind self. So in Barack Obama's academic view of the world, it's not a tragic view at all. It's not the Christian tragic view, it's not the Sophoclean tragic view that we're flawed people and we're capable of anything unless there's a gun to your head that said behave. He doesn't believe in this concept called deterrence. He doesn't believe in deterrence. He doesn't believe that China or Russia act badly or, or well depending on uh, their ultimate aims, rewards, cost-benefit analyses. Just doesn't think that he's going to be so retrograde to get down to that Neanderthal level. That's another reason I think that uh, we see this very sharp break in this 70-year period. Another is, that, of course, he's a community organizer, so he believes that every dollar invested in the military or in foreign affairs is one dollar that was robbed from what? Entitlements, community organization, global warming, domestic spending. He really does not believe that that's an investment against a much more expensive war that would break out if you didn't deter it and that military readiness, preparedness from Roman times on was always considered economical, given the alternative. And we should have known that after the 20th century. We lost more people in war in the 20th century than all other wars combined in civilization's history. So he, he had a therapeutic view. He was very uh, wary about defense spending, thinking it robbed the domestic budget he was ignorant. He didn't really know the mechanics or the history or the values or the protocols of the post-war order. And there's a fourth and I think even more disturbing ideology of this strange foreign policy that we have right now, and that is that he had a deep suspicion. I wouldn't go as far as somebody like Dinesh D'Souza, the post-colonial theories, but he did have a deep suspicion that the influence and power of the United States, while it was real, had in some way not been earned. It was due to a fluke or some type of oppression. Because after all, I mean, he goes to the United Nations and he starts explaining Benghazi in terms of some right-wing filmmaker who caused this and assuring the world that the, or, or, although he did it on American soil, I'll stop it. Or he went to the UN lately and started to contextualize Ferguson right in the middle of a trial when we don't know the details. Or he went to Turkey, let's be honest, the cradle of genocide in the 20th century, and started to talk about American genocide. So there's this feeling that he's very disturbed about the influence the United States weighs abroad and yields. 
And it's almost as if he believes that most of you in the audience who are the 1% didn't quite earn it. So he's almost saying to the America, you're like the 1% at home. You didn't build that. Now's not the time for you to profit. At some point you have enough power and you should have quit. And so he sees the world as a place where he could outsource responsibility to more legitimate hegemonies, regional hegemonies, a China here, a Russia here, an Iran here, maybe a Venezuela or a bloc here, and that these people are more authentic. To the degree that you distrust this post-war system, although he, he has to work within a government that's bipartisan in the Congress and he's afraid to be so explicit, but if you look at the trajectory of his policy mo mo motives and, and actual acts, you get the impression that he is sympathetic to Mohammed Morsi and the Muslim Brotherhood or Hamas or even people in Iran because he feels that they're not tainted with Westernism, that they're authentically speak to uh, their own people. And he said that in the El Arabia interview, the first he gave as coming into as a president. He said, I will appeal to people because of my, not only my name, but my father's religious affinities and the fact that I'm not George Bush and people will appreciate that. He didn't have a classical Greek view, in other words, that the world's a nasty place, and that in five years, if you really believe that, they're going to look at your magnanimity or your hostility to your own country and think you're crazy and weak and your Pew International popularity will be lower than George Bush, which is what happened. He doesn't believe that human nature would be that way, and now he's disappointed in all of us because he came into the world to save us, and we rejected him as John, to quote John, the gospel, and now he's angry at us. We didn't live up to his expectations. So I'd like to finish by just focusing on four. What is the fallout of all this? Well, I don't really care whether he bows to a Saudi prince, and I don't think most of you care whether or not he apologizes today or tomorrow, but you do care about other things. And let's just finish by looking at four or five things that are dangerous. Whatever you feel about Iraq, um, I think you could argue that in the uh, the last 12 years, the worst strategic decision we made was to leave Iraq in 2011, all for the sake of a campaign re-election talking point. I ended the Iraq war, I got everybody out. Think it, that it would be analogous to a 1952 campaign that Dwight Eisenhower said, if you elect me, he did say I'll go to Korea, but I will get every troop out of Korea. And then in 1954, he said, okay, we're back to 38th parallel, we're out. Korea, and I mean Kia, Samsung, as we know, would not exist today. Or if we had said, we bombed Milosevic out of power, did that, gone, we're out of the Balkans. Not to mention Italy and Japan and Germany, what they would look like today had we done uh, to them what we did in Iraq. The best negative example is, of course, Vietnam. You could argue militarily that the country was, by 1974, somewhat pacified. Getting out and pulling everybody out due to the Watergate acrimony and the cutoffs by con Congress, ended up with the helicopters on the roof, which I think we're going to see in Afghanistan next year as we do the same thing. That was a very dangerous thing. It helped to birth ISIS. We had destroyed radical Islamic terrorist organizations in Anbar province by 2009 at great cost to the U.S. military. Brilliant people risked their lives and died for places like Ramadi, Bakuba, Fallujah only to see them fall because of a want of a talking point. That's what it was. Second, uh, I'm, I think you're all worried about Iran. That came up in the questioning. We gave them five deadlines. 
Barack Obama did since 2009 to stop enrichment. And they were, stop it by the time of the G20 summit, stop it by the time of the UN uh, General Assembly meeting, stop it by the first of the year, stop it by the 640 call. And in each case they were ignored and then they were rewarded for ignoring those deadlines by unilaterally uh, lightening or softening or winding down the sanctions. And now we're almost, if it seems preposterous, I think they're saying the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I don't know where that exists anywhere in the Middle East. And when I read history, the enemy of my enemy is still my enemy. But in the Middle East, Barack Obama thinks that Iran is a workable uh, ally. It's of some utility in fighting ISIS. I think that is one of the stupidest things that will happen. And in my mind, in your mind, I think you all fear there's no, there's no impediment now for Iran to getting a nuclear weapon other than Israel. I don't think the United States uh, would stop it. And I think almost, I don't think we would welcome it, but I think that we would think it would be a legitimate thing to do for Iran, given its stature and its regional uh, importance and its own national interest. Then we turn to China. The problem we have with China is that when we start negotiating nuclear deplorable weapons with Russia, that has nothing to do with our Pacific allies, and we start talking about building down to 1,500 deplorable weapons or 1,000, then we have people in the area who say to us, well, wait a minute, we don't have nuclear weapons, but we could build them like Toyotas. We have Japan, we have South Korea, we have Taiwan, we have the Philippines, we have New Zealand, Australia. And why one nuclear weapon, as we know, can destroy civilization as we know it, people can still be Neanderthal and count. And so essentially Japan is saying 10 of those nuclear weapons protect Tokyo. And South Korea says five protect Seoul. And the Philippines say the same, and Taiwan and Australia and New Zealand. When you start talking without consulting them, then you're essentially presenting them with three options. One, they can finally break down as Eastern Europe is doing now with Putin and say, okay, what do you want, China? We acquiesce. We're Asians. We'll have a new co-prosperity sphere. You're like Japan in the 1930s. You're ascendant. We'll work with you. Two, they'll go nuclear. And they could go nuclear, most of those countries, within a year. Or three, they can come to us and say, would you please renew your unshakable guarantees to protect us and offer strategic security? And if we don't do three, then one or two will happen, and I think they'll happen pretty rapidly. And then we come to Vladimir Putin's um, expectates in Georgia and then Crimea and Ukraine and we all know what he's doing. The model is what Adolf Hitler did in the 30s. I don't mean causing World War II, but uh, talking about the Versailles Treaty the way Putin talks about the fall of the Soviet Union. That this was a great tragedy, even though the Versailles Treaty was probably way too soft for Hitler. It was much, much softer to Hitler than what Hitler's ancestors of uh, Ludendorff and Hindenburg and Bismarck wanted to do to France had France lost World War I, or what they in fact did to Russia in 1917. But it didn't matter, because Hitler had this idea that anybody who spoke German was part of the Volk and had to be brought into the confines of the Third Reich. Putin says the same thing, that if you speak Russian and you're a minority in any of these satellite countries, Ukraine or Crimea or the Baltic States, you are Russian. And now we know the script. He says that uh, reactionary fascist forces are defacing World War II monuments. They're trampling on the pride and influence. 
of uh, Russian speakers. Uh, he sends in paramilitaries, and then we have a crisis. The problem, I think, the next time is that we think that he wouldn't go into Estonia or Latvia because they might evoke Article 5. Uh, second time that's been done. We did it after 9-11. And then that would mean NATO would be there. I think he'll go in uh, intentionally because of Article 5. In other words, what better way to destroy NATO than to go into Estonia or Latvia, any of the Bal three Balkan, Baltic states, and uh, show NATO for what it is. It's an empty force now. It's not an alliance as we used to envision it. And uh, it's not spending sufficient amount of money. The United States is not leading it. And uh, it could unravel very quickly. If you doubt that, if you look at what the current status of countries like Romania, Hungary, even, even Poland, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Vladimir Putin, I think you could sum it up as we warned you that if you didn't guarantee our security, and you haven't the last six years, then we are going to talk in a different manner about Putin because although we don't like him, we respect his power, and although we, we like you, we do not respect your weakness. And that's pretty much the situation that's happening in Eastern Europe, and I think it's going to happen in the Pacific as well. The, the fifth example I think is very dangerous is Turkey. Now, you saw General Mattis's map, and you can see why Turkey is so important. The Black Sea, the Mediterranean, a bridge between East and West, this huge population. It's uh, made some economic reforms. So if you, I was in Istanbul and Izmir twice this year. year. They're not recognizable uh, from what anybody saw them 20 years ago. It's westernizing along the coast, but it's still got a, that's a thin veneer, a thin coastal strip. Basically, you've got a growth in fundamental Islamicism in the middle, and that is stronger than the coastal western veneer of the past. So if you look what Erdogan is doing, he is systematically suppressing free speech and dismantling parliamentary government in Turkey. This is interesting because of all the NATO, the 28 NATO countries, Turkey is now the most antithetical to the NATO charter. So we, the idea of NATO was it was going to be the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Forget the fact that it's not now. Most, the minority of the countries are in the North Atlantic. Only Canada, the United States on our side, just a few up in Northwestern. There's more Mediterranean and Eastern European countries than there are North Atlantic, but it's antithetical to the charter of every one of the other, the Constitution's charter and values of every one of the other NATO countries. More importantly, if you can imagine who would be the most likely uh, country to be in a dispute with Turkey, and we can just look at the recent history, Greece, Right now, Turkey is bullying northern uh, Cyprus over oil rights. It's bullying Greeks over the Aegean. It has overflights in the Aegean. It's still bullying Armenia over disputed territory. It has a long-standing fight with the Kurds, and it's a big backer of Hamas, anti-Israeli, pro-Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Would anybody want to go to war on Turkey's behalf against any of those countries in accordance with Article 5? I say that because we have also Article 4, which says it's not quite as dramatic as Article 5. It says in times of crisis, countries will consult for the safety of the aggrieved party. It's been evoked four times, once by Poland in its worry about Crimea, three other times by Turkey, more than any other uh, 
NATO country, more than any other NATO country, all of them in the aggregate combined. So Turkey has a propensity to evoke charter, but it's the least likely to be credible. And what I'm getting at is that we were aware of that, that there were disturbing trends in Turkish society, Turkish politics, and that the current government was this slowly dismantling constitutional government in favor of a theocratic state, and that the Ottomans that had once been the antithesis of modern Kamalist Turkey were now the models. And so we were trying to pressure Turkey in very subtle ways, and Barack Obama came in. He saw him as an authentic third world or bridge between East and West or a legitimate foil to this 70-year-old uh, post-war order, and immediately we had a special relationship with Turkey. And what happened was there was the flotilla Gaza right after that, the exchange between Turkey and Israel, it almost came to blows. There was this great push to get Mohammed Morsi uh, established in Egypt, and there was overt support for Hamas in Gaza, all because of this new relationship that uh, Obama had developed. So if you, you look at the status of the world today with China and Russia and ISIS and Iraq and Syria and Iran with the bomb and what Turkey's doing, it's the logical fruition of this doubt that I talked about. Now, how does it end to finish? I don't know how it ends. We don't know how it ends. We only have one case history to look back to because we've only done this one time in our history since World War II. It was Jimmy Carter. And after all of those proclamations, suddenly the world said, I played poker with this guy. He's bluffing. It's time to take my winnings and cash out. And Russia invaded Afghanistan the end of 1979. China invaded Vietnam. They overthrew the Shah, the Iranian theocrats. We kind of praised them for a while. Then they took hostages. And next thing we knew, we had communist insurrections throughout Central America. And then a very strange thing happened. Jimmy Carter, who has criticized Barack Obama's recklessness, said that he was reckless. And he upped defense spending to a level that would be 4% GDP before the Reagan military buildup could come the next year. He established the Carter Doctrine that said anybody who tried to change the status quo in the Middle East would be subject to the severest uh, response of the United States. And he basically refuted everything he'd done for four years. And uh, we survived. The problem is that we have two years uh, of a policy that's been in existence, two years more of a policy that's been in existence for six years, and there is no indication, no sign, no hint that it's going to change. If anything, I'm afraid the president's going to double down. And so I think that, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration or fear-mongering to suggest with this happy thought that the next 24 months, I think, will be the most dangerous in the 70-year history of the post-war era, at least in my lifetime since October of 1962. And with that happy thought, thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on either iTunes U or SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.